morning is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Eleazar, Kedrolamor king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Birsha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shebnar king of Zebulun, and king uh, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedorlamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlamor and the king allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth, uh, Carnian, and the Zuzites in Ham, and uh, Emites in Sheba, Kirathim, and Horites in the hill country of Syrah, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zebulun, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedolomor, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Eroi, the king of uh, Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who escaped came and reported to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eskol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This is God's word. You may be seated. That is the Old Testament version of all of the begats in the New Testament. (laughs) I think David did an awesome job of reading that. Thank you. We're going to be looking at Genesis, uh, the entire chapter, uh, this morning in the time that we have left. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we press our mind into God's Word. Father, we're grateful that in all of the ways that you intersect our life and our lives intersect your present, that you you change us. So that as we go into dark places, we go as light. And as we go into places of mourning, we go as peace. And when we go into places of sorrow, Father, there is a sense of joy because you're our great reward that goes with us. 
And in all of these things, Father, we want to reflect the greatness, the fact that you are our great reward in all that we do. That you are the the treasure, that you are the, the core, you are the center of all things. And as we, we, we fight in the interior of our soul and heart to make you so, we pray for your strength to do it. And we also pray, Father, that as we look at this text this morning in the life of Abraham, your friend, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the preeminent writers in, in our generation right now, uh, even though he died uh, a couple of years ago, is a fellow by the name of Dallas Willard, who is, the, I think, the preeminent and prolific and most profound writer on the formation of, of human beings as disciples, especially in the area of, of faith. And I want to begin with a quote by, uh, by Dr. Willard um, out of the book, uh, the, the, the Great Omission. And he writes, Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. I think that that is a tremendous statement. And it reminds us that we must always think about grace in sort of a multidimensional way, which means that as we think about grace, grace begins with God revealing himself to human beings. That is a grace. It is a gift. It's not something that we should expect or that we should presume that something perfect would reveal itself to something that is imperfect in a way that imperfection can understand that. So it begins with with grace, uh, as grace, God showing himself to human beings. But grace continues. And it continues as God brings those human beings into his presence. The most popular way to understand grace is a gift. It It is a gift that we receive from God. When we are redeemed, that is a gift. Our forgiveness, our salvation is a gift from God that we cannot ever, ever, ever earn. But at the popular level, this is where most people begin the the, the stoppage when it comes to understanding or thinking about grace. But grace keeps going. Think of it this way. Suppose one day a a person that you don't know very well gives you a a tract of land, about 100 acres of some undeveloped farmland, and he gives it to you as a gift. You don't have to pay one red cent for it. You certainly are not receiving it because of any depth of, of relationship with that individual. It's just a gift. It's, it's a grace to you in a manner of speaking. So what do you do having received it? Just go by and look at it once a week or once a month or so and hope that, that something begins to happen with it? No, once you have received that gift, the real hard work of cultivating the land is just beginning. Stones have to be removed and fences built, and all of that is hard work. It takes effort. And then after that, there is, there is the hard work of plowing and, and, and making the land productive. And that's hard work. But after all of that hard work and after all of that culti- cultivation, all of a sudden there is the harvest. The gift of free land was turned into something beautiful and bountiful. Or you might think about it this way. And this kind of comes from the book of Hosea. Think about a marriage between two people. 
The wife knows without a shadow of a doubt that her husband loves her unconditionally, that she could do the most crushing, despicable, disloyal thing in the world. She could be involved in some, some infidelity and that her husband would not only not leave her, but would forgive her and continue to love her. So what is she going to do with that knowledge? What is she going to do with that knowledge? She could, knowing that that is a truth, that he would never leave her regardless of what she does, she could try to ruin her reputation on any man that would have her. Or she could live a life that's worthy of that love. She could live a life worthy of that love, and then in the end, that relationship becomes everything. When we repent and we put our faith in the Christ and we are baptized for the remission of our sins, we receive a gift that we could never earn. We have been given a gift of salvation and a gift of redemption and a gift and that redemption means that we have been bought out of an enslavement to sin that is crushing us and killing us. It means that we have become the forever children of God. And the forever children of God who have been saved this way become disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is where the hard work of life begins. It begins in being transformed into a different kind of living, a different way of living. You know as well as I do that it's easier to grow old than it is to grow up in the faith. And that's why Peter has to remind the church in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that we are to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to grow in that grace. We are to grow. Grace does not create a static life. You're just, your life is not like this. Your life becomes dynamic. There is a power that has come into your life that changes you. The grace that saves you is the grace that changes you. And that really makes sense when you think about it, right? I mean, when we think about the attributes of God, that God is great and He's magnificent and He's holy in ways that we can't understand. It's infinitely holy and powerful and loving and knowledgeable and compassionate and long-suffering and all of these things. Does it make sense to us that as He draws us in all of our fallenness into His presence that we're not going to be changed somehow? Is there so much pride in the understanding of who we are as human beings in this life, that we actually think that we can rub shoulders with God and not be bruised. That's why we have to be reminded of an important fact about discipleship. Disciples are not mere consumers of spiritual services. Spiritual blessings, that is just about receive, 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 receive. But when we receive the blessing of our redemption from sin and God's Spirit comes inside of us as we become His children, we become cultivators of a certain kind of a life. We cultivate a life of faith in God. And as we've been looking in the life of Abraham, faith is more than just obedience. You know as well as I do. There are people all over the world that are coerced every day against their will to obey a despot, to obey some kind of a tyrant, and they hate it, and they're just waiting for the day when they can rebel and throw those shackles off of them. Faith, biblically speaking, is not just about obedience, but it's about trust. I mean, think about the Latin word for faith, the word fides. It not, mean, it, it not only means faith, but it also means trust. And this is where we're headed this morning. The degree to which disciples trust God corresponds to the degree by which they have cleared their hearts of idols. That's where the difficult work of being a disciple 
is every day. Uh, there's a, a famous preacher that defines an idol this way. He says, he says, an idol is just anything that's good that you turn into an ultimate thing. A good that becomes an ultimate thing. Think about a college degree. You spend all of your life, the first 18 years of your life, trying to get the right resume, trying to get the right kinds of activities on that resume and on that application to be able to get into the right school. And what happens if you don't get into that school? Or what happens if you get into that school and in the course of study, something happens that detours you and deviates your course? If that college degree is, is your idol, then you are devastated because of the failure. Some of the hardest work that you and I are ever going to do in our life as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth is to discern and clear our hearts of idols when it comes to following God. Some of the hardest work we will do is to clear our heart and to cultivate, to clear our heart of idols and to cultivate it as a place for God. And not only that, it will be the biggest fight of your life because idols are sneaky and they're diligent and they disguise themselves as a good. Now, you're probably asking, what in the world does that have to do with that passage that David just read with all those names in it? Well, quite frankly, this is where we find Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14 opens up with two firsts. The first is, this is the very first place in the Bible where kings are mentioned. And you know as well as I do, because we watch the news, that wherever you mention kings, you're always going to have that second thing. And this is the second first thing you read in chapter 14 about uh, uh, that's happening in this passage. It's not only first time mention of kings, first time mention of war. Now, it's probably not the first war in the history of the world, but it's the first one in the history of the Bible. It's the first one that's mentioned. And there's this alliance of four kings. They are powerful. They have subdued five kings over 12 years. In the 13th year, the five subjugated kings have had enough, and they want to rebel. And again, it reminds us that a lot of life boils down to who is really going to be king, these four kings or the five kings. And in the 14th year, these four kings decide they've had enough of all of this rebellion. They're going to war against the five kings. And they draw up their battle lines at this little valley known as the Valley of Sedim, and it's on the southern end of the Dead Sea. Now, you know as well as I do, too, when it comes to war, that it's treacherous to be in battle at all times. It's treacherous to be in battle at all times. It's more treacherous in this particular case because this land is covered with these tar pits. And in the ancient world, the way that they, they, they did warfare, it was hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so it was intense. But now they're fighting in an area where you've got these tar pits. Nobody wants to fall in and get trapped. So all of the hand-to-hand -hand is in these smaller areas, so it becomes even more intense. And because somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose and somebody's going to make the decision that they're going to need to flee, the retreat is more hazardous because of these tar pits. And that's what happens. The five kings are whipped by the four kings and they flee for their lives. And some of the men that are fleeing fall into the tar pits and sadly they become sitting ducks to be killed by their enemies. Now the valley of Sedim is close to the southern tip of the Dead Sea, which is also close to the place where we think that Sodom and Gomorrah were located. It makes sense because when this battle is, is done... The, the, the army of the four kings is close enough to Sodom that their army is able to go in and, and pillage Sodom and Gomorrah, take all of the people, take all of the food, take all of the goods, and go back home. 
There is this one guy, though, that we read about in the text that is able to escape, somehow undetected, still has his life and strength, and is able to get to Abraham. He tells Abraham what has happened in the battle. And on top of that, he tells him that Abraham's nephew, his nephew Lot, has been whisked away by the army of the four kings. Now it's here that Abraham sort of becomes this international figure. And it's a a place where, as this international figure, he goes to war. And he takes 318 of of his trained men. He chases down the army of the four kings in order to liberate Lot. They find the camp. And at night, they divide into two groups, and in the middle of the night, they attack, and they rout the army of the four kings, and they chase them all the way up north of Damascus. They rescue Lot, they rescue all of the people, and they rescue all of the goods. It's a pretty amazing story. But remember that this is, this is not just a separate incident that, that we just lift out of the context of Abraham's life. The context is narrative. It's story. Chapter 14 fits right at the end of chapters 12 and chapter 13. Abraham, in Genesis 12 and 13, has had to face some threats. The land, he gets to the promised land. It looks like the land's not going to be able to sustain him. It's not going to be able to to support his family because there's a severe famine. So the first threat is the land is not going to be able to produce enough for us to live here. So he decides to go down to Egypt. You remember this story. On the way to Egypt, he realizes, my wife, my goodness, Everybody's going to think she's beautiful. Even Pharaoh of Egypt is going to think that she's gorgeous. They're going to want to take her for themselves, which means if they're going to legally and lawfully do it, they've got to get rid of me. And, and, and so, fa- so that Abraham begins to fear for his life, and that is the second threat. And what this part of his story, his narrative illustrates for us, is a very important spiritual truth. That fear is the product of allegiance to the wrong God. Remember that faith is a process of discovery. Abraham is discovering that to follow God is not just to consume spiritual services, to get the land, to get the blessing, to get the son, to get all of the stuff. Abraham is discovering that faith is about trusting God. And he's beginning to pick up on what is going to be later written down as a truth in Psalm 91. The psalmist says, if you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. When you think about your own life, following the wrong God creates fear. If marriage is your God, what happens when that marriage begins to unravel a little bit? Your life is threatened. Success can be great, but what happens when you don't get the promotion? Sports is great, but what happens when your team doesn't win? Remember, an idol is a good thing that's been turned into an ultimate thing. And at the same time, remember in the very first sermon that we looked at in terms of Abraham, I talked about a a, a truth I never wanted you to forget as we were going through Abraham. That truth is up on the screen. That the story of Abraham was written down when the people of God were stuck between the desert and the promised land. They saw themselves as little in comparison when they went from Kadesh Barnea into the promised land. They saw themselves as little in comparison to what looked like giants to them, and they turned back at Kadesh Barnea in fear. 
And now the generation after them, the generation that's hearing this story from Moses for the very first time about Abraham in Genesis, they're hearing a story of how a man with a small group of warriors, but with this gigantic and great trust in God, defeated the army of four kings in the very land they are headed toward. And Moses is trying to get them to see that fear comes from following the wrong God. And what he's going to tell them is that you trust in the God Most High, which leads to the second thing. Success can open the door to another idol. I mean, Abraham has done a pretty amazing thing. With 318 men, trained men, he has gone a great distance and during the night divided his group. He has attacked and has routed them, has sent them flying. They flee north of Damascus. They route them that far and they bring back Lot, they bring back the people, and they bring back all of the goods. And when Abraham comes back home, he's met by two kings. The first one is Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. He is also the king of Salem. He is one of the most intriguing figures in in the entire Bible. And the reason is, is that we find in this one person, Melchizedek, all of the attributes that we find in lots of people separately. He is not just a king, but a priest. He's not just a priest, but he is also a king. He has combined these attributes in one person, makes him intriguing, makes him special. The second is the king of Sodom, and both of these men bring the heart of Abraham to a crisis point faith-wise. Will Abraham see from where the victory really has come from, or will he take the credit? Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, approaches him. He blesses Abraham. And in the blessing, he reminds Abraham of where the victory has come, come from. He says in verses 19 and 20, Blessed be Abram by God most high, El Elyon, creator, which also means possessor, of heavens and earth. And praise be to God most high, El Elyon, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek has said, blessed is God most high for what he has done through you. King of Sodom comes, and this cat is not the king of Sodom because he is promoting righteousness. He sees the international figure of Abraham, knows that Abraham is is a dude that can lead some men into battle, It looks like a possible powerful alliance for him. And he tells Abraham, you keep all of the goods. Give me back the people. Let's form the beginning of a beautiful relationship. You watch my back. I'll watch yours. But Melchizedek has already reminded Abraham of something really important. That God Most High has blessed you, Abraham. That God Most High has given you, Abraham, the victory. And so Abraham turns to the king of Sodom and he says, "Uh, Thanks, but no thanks. And with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High. You see, he takes the name that Melchizedek uses. Creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. You see, Abraham is really growing. Now, he's not perfect, and he's discovering that faith is a process. But he's also discovering the truth that's later expressed in Psalm 146. Do not put your trust in princes, which says a lot about our entire political process right now. I don't want to go down that path, but I just want to say, (laughs) 
We're not saved by a donkey or an elephant, but by a lamb. That's what we remember. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in their Lord, the Lord their God. He is the maker. There it is. Possessor, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. And he remains what? Faithful forever. Now church, that's a really hard lesson to learn about success and about fear. And even though Moses is telling the people of Israel this, this story of Abraham that happened hundreds of years before them, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And they're going to follow God, and they're going to trust in princes or in other human beings, and they're going to go up into, into the face, into the, 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 the mouth of one of the biggest, most armored and fortified cities of the ancient world, Jericho. And they're going to do something crazy because God said so. They're going to march around it for a week, and they're going to watch those gigantic walls come down. And it gave them a lot of success. And so now, just down the road, there's this little place called Ai. Not quite as big as Helotus, maybe. And they go, you know what? We've got this. We can do this. And you know the story. Confident in their own prowess, they attack tiny AI and they're routed. Because the biggest fight in a disciple's life is discerning their own heart in order to clear the heart of idols, in order to trust God. But those idols are tricky, and they come back, and they are diligent, and they disguise themselves as a good, and it's hard work. And so if there's anything that I think that we get out of chapter 14, it is a reminder that any fear that causes us to shrink back is something that we need to take note of. And any success that tempts us to go it alone is something to take note of. It's a sign of a possible idol in your heart. One of the ways that God is going to describe himself in the next chapter is that he is a shield around us. Wherever we go in this world, we will face the opportunity and the circumstance and the situation that will either make us feel so empowered and enabled that we're going to do it on our own or we're going in fear to shrink back and not go it because we're absolutely terrified at failure and what that might do in crushing our heart. But here's the thing that we, that we know that Abraham didn't. Is that we too get carried away. We too get carried away by the enemy. We too get carried away by, by, by the enemy that will enslave us and will do us harm. And we haven't done anything to be able to justify the fact that we need to be redeemed and should, should hopefully be redeemed. But there is one who left his place of comfort and his place of security and traveled a great distance in order to rescue us from that which had captured us. And when we think about that, how the Christ, like Abraham going after Lot, how the Christ left heaven in order to come after us and to rescue us, putting himself in danger, putting himself in danger, then we find ourselves just being radically transformed in our understanding of what it means to trust God. He's not the one that waits for us to merit his services 
He's the one in love and in grace comes after us. Comes after us. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And faith is a process of discovery where we learn through shared experiences with God to trust Him more and more and more and to do business with our own hearts and soul in clear, clearing the land and cultivating the land in order to get rid of the idols and the things that step, stand in the way of flourishing and fruitfulness and, and, and a bountiful faith in order for God to take His place and to be God Most High, the possessor of the heavens and the earth and also our own hearts. David's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there's a way that our church can, can respond to you and, and minister to you in ways that you've been thinking about, maybe about turning your life around and maybe becoming a disciple of Jesus. And that can happen today. Do not wait for this kind of blessing to come streaming into your life. Or it may be that you need the prayers of the church to help you to deal with the fear or to deal with the success in such a way that God is the possessor and the sole possessor of your heart whatever it might be. Some of our shepherds are going to be right down here at the front. Come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world, delight.